Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog training professionals and dog enthusiasts where we discuss training, behavior, and everything in between. We're two friends and dog trainers that share a passion for dogs. We're constantly learning, exploring, and questioning each other's ideas as well as our own so we can become better at what we do. We're here to provide helpful advice, have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry, regardless of method and training style. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session. Hey everyone, welcome back to Canon Classroom. I'm Anthony DeMarinis with Vinny Viola, and today we have Helene Lawler. Hello. Hello. It's actually Elen, just to- Elen. Uh, Elen. Elen, yeah. I don't, Elen know why I, was, I don't know why I thought it was Helene. It, well, it's spelled, it looks like it's spelled that way. So Maybe because it has an the, H in the beginning. You know. Yeah. With the it's E, no, but it. also the E at the end, uh, maybe. Okay, so wait, say it again. Elen. Stuff. It's the French version. I'm and I, if you're looking at my Zoom, it doesn't have the accents on it, so that's also. But <laughs> I don't. I don't expect most people to know how to pronounce it unless they they know how to speak French. I actually, I actually don't even know how to put the um, the accents on the letters. It's funny because I see your name on Facebook with it, and I always like. I never know how to do it. I always say I'm going to look it up, and I don't even know how to still do it. <laughs> I don't know how to put them there. That's okay. It's okay. <laughs> so uh, tell everyone a little bit, uh, a little bit about yourself. Um, so that way everyone kind of gets to know you a little bit. All right. So um, I'm a, I'm a professional dog sport coach. I work with, um, <clears throat> excuse me, people who uh, compete and train with their dogs for dog sports. And I help them get their, performance, um, up to the next level, depending, you know, wherever that, that is for them. So some people are focused on really improving their training skills and other people have competition goals that they want to grow. And I work with, um, doing a deep dive into kind of two areas that I work on a lot. And one of them is really, um, mastering, uh, training skills and understanding. And I'm, I'm very dedicated to positive reinforcement approaches to training. Um, and I specifically take a, what, what, um, well, the term comes from Amy Cook, um, R plus 2.0 perspective. Um, we can talk about that if you want, but basically that's looking at really working with dogs, keeping their emotional, um, state, uh, can into as a like primary consideration and working from that approach. And we, I know we're going to dive into this because of the, some of the things we've talked about and I can explain in more detail, uh, what I mean by that. Um, and, and then the other thing I work on is, uh, uh, the, the other end of the leash, uh, the human end of the leash. And that is really my jam. So I work a lot with mindset, mindset coaching, working with, um, nervous systems at both ends of the leash, a lot around performance and competition, because, when we train for dog sports, whether or not we ever walk into the ring, um, it brings up a lot of big feelings. So that's the other thing that I work um, with. And I personally uh, train and compete in herding. Um, I have actually worked, you know, you know trained in, in quite a few different sports over the years. I did, I did agility competitively for a while. And then I've just dabbled in a lot of other sports, a little bit of 
um, you know, bite sports, uh, search and rescue, bit of nose work stuff. Um, nothing, never, never to at a competitive level, more just kind of exploring those areas, those sports. Um, I, my passion is working dogs in general. Um, and I live with, I've got a house full right now. I've got 14 border collies, uh, an Australian Kelpie, two Marema livestock guardian dogs, um, a brand new rat terrier, and I've got sheep, uh, goats, poultry, and I live on a small hobby farm in Eastern Ontario. So that's me in a nutshell. And I've been doing this for a while now too. <laughs> you put, I think you just put Kamal Fernandez to shame because last time he was on, I think, what do you say, Vinny? He has 12 dogs or something? Yeah, 12 or something. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to be in his company <laughs> having that many dogs. Yeah. I, I breed, I breed. So occasionally I end up with, um, Dogs that, you know, like right now I have one that came back. He didn't work out in his home. I always offer that as a guarantee for any, any dog that um, I sell it has a guaranteed return here um, for the life of the dog. So um, it hasn't happened very often, but like I have one back right now. Um, and also when I breed and raise a litter of puppies, if I see a puppy who's a real outlier um, that I think is going to be very challenging for someone to raise and I don't have an appropriate home, um, I will keep and raise them up. And then sometimes I then find them a home. Sometimes they stay here forever, depends on, on their path. Um, but so as a result, I have probably a few more dogs than I would actually intentionally go out and have, but I do like having a lot. Like I would probably intentionally have maybe seven or eight. Um, I can train that many very comfortably. Um, and then I have a couple of dogs who are retired, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah. I've seen one of your border collies before. Uh, one of the puppies that you bred. He seems yeah. like solid overall dog. Honestly, he's, he's a fantastic. He's a fantastic. He's like a flagship dog for my breeding yeah. program. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about, probably. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. So he, I've seen him before. He just seems really cool. Um. Yeah. So this kind of happened because you and I were chatting a little bit. Um. I don't know. We were just rambling. I think about like my Kelpies and you having Kelpies and, and uh, herding. Cause I know I reached out to you to ask you a couple of questions um, about herding. So kind of selfishly, I guess my first question that I want to really know more about is the difference between a more positive reinforcement based approach to sheep herding versus maybe um your standard sheep herding, or uh, I don't, I don't even know what to call it. Uh, you know, in usually terms call of it traditional. Traditional, traditional. Yeah. yeah. So, and I'm, I'm asking really because I was trained more from the traditional approach for herding, I guess, as opposed to um, a positive based approach. Um, even though, you know, learning as a pet trainer was the opposite for me. So, so. Um, I don't really know much about positive based herding. So it's something I actually was curious to hear your take on it. And then I figured we kind of jump around from there a little bit. Yeah, sounds great. Um, okay. So positive herding, what is positive herding? Um, well, as with like anything to do with dog sports, if you asked, you know, 10 people, you would get 10 different answers. So I'm going to give you my answer to that. And I know that um, my, my definition of positive herding is not going to be the same as other people who, um, who 
I don't know, call themselves or, you know, explore this area. I don't know how you want to define it, but, um, and so what I'll say, I'll, I'll kind of break it down a little bit um, like this. There's the whole concept of positive reinforcement based training. And if, you know, I don't know how familiar your audience is with, with the concept, but we break it down into quadrants, right? We have positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment. And those are and positive means adding something um, and negative means taking something away. So when we, we add something and then and then you either reinforce or you punish. And we're not talking about the dog, but we're talking about a behavior. So we add something to reinforce a behavior. We take something away to reinforcement behavior. We um, we add something to punish a behavior or we add or we take something away to punish a behavior and reinforcing a behavior means we see it happen more frequently. So, you know, a behavior has been reinforced if it ha it starts to happen more frequently um, and, it, and we call it say a, a behavior has been punished if we see it happening less frequently. And I think the terms can be a little bit misleading because a lot of people think of like, you know, punishing is like, we punish the dog, you like hit the dog, you yell at the dog or whatever, right? Which is often how this plays out, but that is not what the terms mean. So when we talk about the, the to talk about, you know, positive reinforcement, what it technically means from a scientific perspective is we add something to reinforce the behavior that we want to see. So when I'm training my dog to work sheep, I want to try and add something that reinforces what they're doing. Um, and so if we think about it in like pet dog training terms, it's like you add, you know, your, 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 if your dog sits, you give it a piece of cheese, you're adding a piece of cheese to try and reinforce the sitting behavior. So you get more sitting if you've just cued the dog to sit. So we want to if we extrapolate those be, those that those principles to training for herding, um, it's it's an area that like I, I've spent a lot of time trying to unpack like how can we do this with herding? How can we stay in that quadrant with herding? And I'm going to say that everything is theoretically possible. So I am not going to say it is not possible. I think, I believe it absolutely is. I spent a lot of time trying to work this out. I know people who claim that they do this um, and have good success only using the positive, the R plus quadrant. I think it's, um, so uh, I'm, I'm jumping around. I, I don't want to leave like holes because my brain is jumping over things that I don't want to skip. So stop me if I need to like exp explain a little bit more because I'm skipping around too much. But um, so my my initial journey, so the, I'll explain my, my journey. So I was going through, um, I, I had a lot of, all my training was, I, I would say, you know, traditional herding training, which uses all four quadrants. So people will, you, you know, reinforce, they will punish. Um, and sometimes the punishment is actually punishing. So, you know, you might yell at your dog or, you know, take a, um, uh, like, I, I don't know, like a shaker can and shake, make noise or throw the shaker can on the ground. So it like startles the dog and things like that. There are a lot of these little, little tricks and tips that people do to try and get the dog. Because when you're, when they're working on sheep, when they're, they're, their instincts can be so strong um, and they, and their arousal goes up so high that the dog just like zones in on what they're doing. And, and it's really hard to kind of get their attention and get them to respond. And so a lot of people use, um, will use um, you know, things like what I just described and some people go further down that path too. Um, uh, and they use that to try and interrupt the dog's behavior to get, and, and then also to split the dog's attention and get, get the dog to keep the handler in the picture. Um, and, 
And so um, when we apply a lot of that, uh, a lot of punishment, a lot of um, these, you know, behavior interrupters, if you want to call them that, um, they can, one of the things that that can create is, is some fear in the dog. And the dog, when the dog is a little bit afraid um, or a lot, they're going to keep the handler in the picture. And so they're going to be like, oh, I really want to work the sheep, but man, that, that human over there, I got to keep an eye on, on her too. So I'm going to like, make sure that I keep her in the picture. And so a lot of people, I want to say a lot of people, it, it can be that people cross, cross the line into creating fear in the dog as a way of um, keeping themselves in the picture. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and when you're working with that level of intensity and arousal, that is an effective approach. Um, and so it's not uncommon for that to be used in training. Um, now when, so I have my Kelpie, my, my first Kelpie, uh, I, I was trying to get her to work sheep and her arousal was very high. She was very intense. Kelpies are, um, well, I don't want to speak. I don't know. I don't know a lot about the breed. I've only had a couple. Um, I know, I know border collies a whole lot better, but so I, I can't generalize too much about Kelpies, but my experience with Kelpies was that, uh, was that this one in particular anyway. Um, and she came out of Catalines uh, where they were there. She's a lot less sensitive than my border collies. So she was really intense. She, uh, and a lot of the kind of the, the strategies I was, had used successfully to like keep myself in the picture with my border collies uh, just wasn't working with Holly. She was just like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. You can yell and you can slap things at me and you can stomp your feet and have little tantrums. And I don't really care. I'm going to go after the sheep. Um, and so what I started ending up doing was upping the amount of punishment that I was having to use, um, in, in terms of like things that I was trying to do to get her to keep me in the picture. So I was like, you know, yelling and chasing and jumping in front of her and blocking her and being like, trying to be more and more, like create a, a bigger and bigger presence of myself to keep her in, keep me in the picture. And it wasn't working. Um, and part of it was because I was pretty novice. Uh, and so my timing was off. I wasn't able to communicate well with her. And, and this is very, this happens a lot too, right? When you, when you don't have the, the knowledge of how to be correct and how to communicate, we tend to compensate by uh, what's it, you know, uh, what does they say? What's the saying? Punishment begins where knowledge ends. Um, and so I was doing a lot of that. And one of the things that happened with, um, some dogs is they develop, um, what, what is called a punishment callus. And so they start to, you know, tune you out. And so then you have to, you know, what works for a while to keep you in the picture, they, they, they stop that stops working. And so then you have to raise, elevate your level of, of punishment and to get, you know, the dog to listen again. And then that works for a little while. And then, and then they develop a callus. And so not every dog is going to have that, but Holly was one of those dogs. So she was developing more and more of a punishment callus. And I was getting to the point where I was like, I'm going to be uncomfortable. Like I'm, I'm not uncomfortable with yelling at my dog. I'm not uncomfortable with like, you know, having like, um, yeah, like a, a flag and flapping the flag around to try and like catch their attention and stuff like that. But I, but I, I do get uncomfortable if I'm starting to threaten, like, physical contact with my dog. Like, I was just like, I don't want to go there. Um, that's not, that's like crossing the line for me personally. And everybody's going to have their own level of like comfort zone. But that I was just like, with my level of skill, which was lacking, I am going to have to use more aversive techniques than I am comfortable using with this dog to try and get her to listen. So I thought I want to 
a, and I, I was at this point, I was going quite down the R plus rabbit hole in, in like agility and other stuff that I was training. So I was like, I want to take these principles and apply them to my dog, to herding. Let's see if I can figure this out. And I have to say that it was an incredibly difficult journey. It still is. I'm still on this path. Like, I don't know, she's 13 now. I think she was one or two back then. So it's, you know, over a decade. And, um, she, it, it was hard because I had nobody to guide me. I had no mentors. I had nobody. I had a lot of people who told me it couldn't be done. Um, and a lot of people told me it was, it shouldn't be done. And so I, you know, and I was, I was stubborn. I was like, of course it can be done. So I, I started to like work at it. And I will say that I made a lot of amazing progress with this dog. Um, I learned an awful lot and I really, um, uh, I got her working in ways that I felt very proud of. I felt very comfortable with. And, um, and I, and I made, uh, I made really good headway in, applying, trying to stay in that positive reinforcement quadrant. Um, now, switching gears after a while, because I, I was like, I'm making progress here. However, I don't know that it makes sense to stay. And this is where I'm going to diverge with other people who follow the R plus herding path. Um, and that's okay. Like everybody's got to find their own path. And there are people who I've been called a balance trainer because of this. And I don't really care about labels. So whatever, <laughs> if that's what, I, that's what this makes me, that's what this makes me. Um, but I started, you know, when you study hurting carefully, you start to say like, it's all pressure release. It's all right. It's pressure between the sheep and the dog. It's pressure between the sheep and the environment. It's pressure between the dog and the environment. It's pressure between the handler and the dog. It's pressure between the handler and the sheep. It's all pressure. The whole dynamic is pressure. And you know, when I teach it, I'm uh, we we start talking about like pressure bubbles. There's like thinking about like every the sheep have a bubble around them, the dog has a bubble around them, I have a bubble around me. The environment has pushes and pulls in it, depending on you know, where, where, you know, what's like, if there's a barn in the picture, if there's sheep in another field, if there's another dog in a corner, if there's like places the sheep know they can escape, there's going to be all of that. So it's all pressure and pressure by definition is negative reinforcement. Right. And like, so to me, I was like, well, then it doesn't make sense for me as, as a teaching tool to try and only stay in the R plus quadrant when the whole dynamic of everything that's going on is engaging all the quadrants because that really limits me and what I can do. Can I, I want to interrupt you. So, um, and again, I'm asking really because, um, I had only one experience with working with a, um, positive, um, instructor for herding and, uh, I, part of it, I'm sure was that I was used to the way I was taught uh with my first dog but i did i found i struggled uh and found that my dog and i both struggled together and i saw my dog uh be more frustrated than he ever had before which was very interesting to me but um and we could talk about that but i guess my question uh just to go back a little what is like how does it, I guess, paint the paint a picture for me? Like, how does it look different, I guess? Um, maybe a more positive approach to sheep herding versus traditional. So like, you know, 
Uh, I'll just explain the first time that I brought my dog to sheep herding. We went in the puppy pen. It was the first time he had ever done it for some, I ever experienced this. He was put in the puppy pen with like, I don't know, three or five sheep. He was a year old. My instructor brought him in, had him on a long line. He held the long line. He had a stock stick in his hand and he stayed in between the dog and the stock just so he could kind of guide the dog around rather than the dog either running away barking or rushing in barking at the stock trying to scare them or chase them or whatever. So is that what the traditional approach would be and what would a positive approach to maybe introducing this one-year-old dog to stock look like? Cause I actually really, I, I know of one approach using a more positive method, but I don't really know other than that, what other, how, how that would look. Okay. Well, so standing between the sheep and the dog is, is pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so that's immediately, um, you're using pressure to shape the dog's power. Yeah. And having the dog on a line is, um, also going to be a form of pressure, right? And that's, mm -hmm. that's molding. So you're molding the dog's path, which is a physical, physically that's, you know, I don't know, we get into, I don't want to get, I am not, I am a practitioner. I'm not a scientist. So maybe I'm going to trip up on some of these terms, but to me, that would be compulsion because you are compelling the dog by using a line. Um, right. It's just like, if you're pushing the dog's bum down, that's compulsion you're compelling. Um, and, and so you're using, that's a, that's a combination of like some compulsion and pressure. Um, I use a long line. Um, I use pressure. So I don't think that either of these is a problem. Um, what, so how, how would you make a use if you were just strictly staying in the positive, in the R plus quadrant, um, what would that look like? Well, you would want to do a lot of flat work away from the stock for one thing. Um, and so you would do a lot of work with, um, teaching the dogs, the cues be, uh, off stock. Mm -hmm. So you really get your. Um, the behaviors down without the arousal and draw of the stock. So you would, um, you know, teach them to walk up, lie down, come by, away. Um, you could set, um, you know, obstacles for them to go around and so on and so forth. And so you would get a lot of the of the cues on, um, you know, on stimulus control before you take ever take your dog to stock. So one of the approaches of okay. uh, if you're doing positive reinforcement and you're really trying to stay in that R plus quadrant, you're going to do an awful lot of flat work ahead of time okay. um, because you can't just take your dog out and let them there. Cause if, I mean, you've done it, you take an untrained dog to stock and they don't have the, mm -hmm. the skills they don't understand. They're just going to react on instinct. And, um, and then you're going to have to get in there and manage that and control that. Um, and you can do that with, long lines and, and pressure. Um, but you are then by definition stepping out of that quad, the R plus. So, so um, at I, least by my, my definition, they said, I don't, people will so probably, I guess, I guess like what I'm like, for me, I understand. So I understand what you're saying. I, and I guess like I, I would teach my dog to lie down. So like my dogs knew how to lie down, which is one of the skills that they are going to need for sheep herding. So my dogs knew how to lie down way before I put them on stock, just because 
Um, It was a skill that I had taught them that they knew. When they're in that aroused state around the stock for the first time, it's obviously difficult. Mm -hmm. So I'm going, I imagine that then I, and I didn't do this, but like, I like, cause I don't have sheep available to me. So I went to the herding lesson uh, and, you know, I put the dogs into the arena and we started practicing and, you know, in the beginning, they're not going to necessarily lie down because they're so aroused and geared up. Right. I am guessing that with a, a taking a more positive approach, um, you might not go into the arena right away. You'd have the the stock in like a, maybe a small pen and the dog uh, either circles the pen or works around the stock around the pen with the stock inside. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And the dog would be on the outside. Correct. And okay. you would start at a distance where your dog can maintain their responses. Mm-hmm. Right. So you might not like you, you would start far away. Can your dog walk up, lie down, go left, go right. And then you move closer and closer and you would build that up slowly until you're, and make sure that your dog kind of never goes into that overall state and always stays in a state of being able to respond um, with high accuracy and low latency. Right. So you say lie down, the dog lies down. They don't like mm-hmm. freeze up and think about it for a minute and that sort of thing. So you would stay at the distance that necessary to um, maintain that and with whatever protected contact you need to be able to maintain the dogs in a state of um, optimal arousal for listening to you and responding to you. And then you gradually build that up um, to the point where the dog can listen really nicely on sheep and, um, and respond. And I think that that's, uh, I think that's great. So I just, you know, I don't think there's a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is, you know, I, I absolutely want my dogs to have a lie down before going out. I want them to have a recall. Um, and, uh, and if we can, the more skills we can give them and the more tools we can give them, the better before going to stock. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm not saying that that is, there's mm-hmm. anything wrong with that. I think that's actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I'm, I'm not saying that it is either. I just wanted clarification because I, it's not something I have experience with. So I just want to yeah. understand really. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so now I don't generally do that. And the reason I don't do that is because I am lazy, not because there's a problem with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, I can take a, a dog with no training and go out and let them work on sheep and using, um, you know, by getting in, you get being in the right place. Like now, now that I've been doing this long enough, I can get out there and I can go out and I can shape the dog's path, which is, as I said, by definition, using pressure and I can guide them and I can block them and I can stop them and I can get them up and running very quickly. So this is the reason I don't, I, I've moved away from, so there's two reasons why I've moved away from really going down that very careful path of trying to stay in the R plus quadrant is because I'm lazy and I want results fast. (laughs) And so I take my dogs out and I start to work with them. And the ones that can move forward quickly, I work, move forward with them very quickly. And some of them can't handle that, at which point I backtrack and I do more of the, of the, like this careful off the flat work, you know, like I have a dog now, uh, Phoenix, he, I've had to be very, very mindful with him. I've spent, you know, hundreds of, I've done thousands of lie downs with him and how getting him to like 
work, he, you know, be able to drop no matter. He has so much arousal. This dog is like, he just brains out his ears with the slightest stimulation, not anywhere near stock. So I've done a lot of foundation work with that dog. So I really adjust how I approach with the dog, but, uh, but most of my dogs, I can walk out to sheep and start working with them pretty quickly. Um, even without a lie down or a recall. And I teach the lie down and the recall on stock using the pre-MAC principle, which is actually by definition R plus. And if you look at um, the really good handlers, most of what they do is actually R plus. They just don't call it that. They use different terms, right? Um, so herding done well is largely R plus. What happens is, is that there's this big zone between the people who do it well and the rest of us because <laughs> it's so freaking hard and there's so much to understand and there's so every dog is different every dynamic is different and so until you have a large enough repertoire to know how to respond and manage things and see things ahead of time and be in the right place and be able to like guide your dog um you like things go south very easily at which point we default to punishment. And so that's where it can become problematic. And I think one of the reasons, like one of the reasons why there is a movement of R plus hurting is because there is an awful lot of that middle zone where there is a lot of punishment being used. And I want to just circle back to what I start, what I talk, talked about at the beginning when we first started talking about R plus 1.0 and R plus 2.0. And for me, positive reinforcement training is less about what quadrant you stay in and more about the emotional state of the dog. Hmm. And for me, that's where I draw, that, that's where what, what defines my approach. Because to me, and again, I, I'm happy to have people disagree with me and nobody, people don't have to, you know, don't have to agree with me. Totally fine. And I know there will be who won't, and that's totally fine. But if I, I, I'm using pressure, we can use pressure as a guide and it doesn't have to necessarily be aversive to the dog. Right. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you're doing agility and you want to send your dog to the backside of a jump. Mm. And so you step into the dog's path and the dog goes around and takes the backside of the jump. That's using pressure as a guide. And there are dogs who will find that aversive. And if you have one of those dogs, then you need to break it down and find other ways to teach them. You have dogs who will not find that aversive and they can, they'll be like, got it. Right. And they just do that. And they'll do that, you know, take the backside or, or, or you ch change their path, right? And so in herding, I am always using, I am stepping into their path, I'm guiding them, I am blocking them, I'm turning them. And I can do that in a way that gives them information about how to be correct. And the I, and I also wanna mention that I work with dogs that are bred for okay. this work. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I was just gonna say that, but I think also just uh, to clarify is that dogs that are bred for working to use pressure, whether they're putting pressure on something or to work through pressure 
even like a bite sport dog, I mean, they're going to, if they're running to bite something, they're running into the face of pressure or, or a guard dog of some kind. I mean, they're kind of running into the face of pressure to some degree. So yeah. um, I, I think it, it's going to be de- a little dependent on, on the individual dog, like you were pointing out, but um, how does, so I was going to, that's what I was going to say next is I was going to ask you like, how do you find, or do you find that certain breeds or dogs that are bred to work dogs, they tend to work through pressure a little differently or take that as information a little differently than, you know, like maybe your, your family pet dog or something um, that yeah. wasn't really bred for that. Right. And, and so that's, that was exactly my point. Like I work with dog, like border collies in particular, who pressure is their natural language. Mm-hmm. They understand how like they just respond naturally to it. If you watch, like I've got, as I said, I got a whole pack of them and I let them out the door and they all, they, they're like a school of fish and they like flow out my door and, and their favorite game is like, let's run really fast and not touch each other. <laughs> and they kind of like, you know, move as a pack and they'll, they keep this, like this, they, they, they know exactly where everybody else is. And they like, don't touch each other as they run around at like super high speeds. And that's because they can feel, and, and, you know, for anybody who's not familiar with, you know, pressure, I'm talking about like, think, think of personal space. Like we, we humans have personal space bubbles and you can tell when somebody walks and steps into your personal space, you feel a little uncomfortable, you move out of it. That's, that's working with pressure. So mm-hmm. When we step into our dog's personal space, they're going to move. Border collies, in particular, um, if if you step into their space when they're moving, that really guides their path, and you can shape their path. Um, now, there are other breeds that aren't going to respond that way. Um, and I don't work with a lot. I don't generally work. I'm not an all breed herder uh, trainer for herding. Um, I, I have worked with a lot of other breeds, um, but you know like one-offs, right? Like a couple of Malinois, you know, a couple of Shelties, a small Mm -hmm. handful of Aussies. Um, So I have a little bit of experience working with them. I've had, you know, a number of people through my, my classes online. Um, But I don't feel like I, I, I I have an expertise in saying like these different breeds, this is how you, how you would work with them. I barely feel like I have an expertise with border collies after 20 odd years, (laughs) right? Like it's this, there's, there's so much to figure out here. Um, but, uh, so the, so the, the shaping their path. So the border collie, the Kelpie, um, dogs that, that are, they really, um, work with pressure a lot. Um, they're going to feel that naturally. Now, some mm-hmm. other breeds, the pressure is going to suck them in more, right. Cause they're, they're meant like to, to, like you said, like with, with like bite sports or, um, you know, other, other, uh, even other herding breeds that are more like healers and like drive drivers and want to push, push, push right there. When they feel pressure, they're going to get sucked in more rather than push out. So you got to know your dog and you have to know how to work with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, but the, the, for me, monitoring the dog's emotional state is the most important thing. And, it, you know, even just within border collies, you're going to have some that have, that are very comfortable with a lot of pressure and you'll, you can tell, um, you know, from watching their body language and their responsiveness, that they're not, they're not stressed out by this. They understand it. They learn, they respond, they work, they seem happy. Their body's relaxed, their tail's in a nice position. 
you know, there, there's a softness about them. And then you have dogs that are going to show you like, whoa, that was way too much pressure. I did not like that. And, um, and you, and that often plays out in, you know, um, you know, they'll, they, they, when, well, when you, when we cross, uh, the threshold, um, we get an arousal spike. And so you're going to see a fight or a flight or a freeze response. And so you'll, you'll know if you cross that line, because your dog is going to have a, a fight response, it'll dive in and grip. Um, and a lot of people mis mistake when they, when their dog is grippy, that's often because of handler pressure. So we need to be very aware of that. Um, we'll see dogs that get wider and wider or slower and slower, or they just start sniffing the ground and eating sheep cookies, which is a euphemism for manure. Um, or they, they quit. Yeah. Right? Just, yeah. So those, that's a flight response. Um, and then we see the dogs that get sticky. Um, they get really slow. They get, you know, people talk a lot about um, uh, do like dogs who get really sticky or clappy where they like lie down and they won't, don't get back up again. That's, a, that's a freeze response. And so when we see those responses, what we've got is an, is a dog that has gone over threshold with its arousal. And so we want to bring them back down. And so that's where I use that as my, as my guide for my, like where I'm at with my teaching and I adjust accordingly. And so what would you, uh, like, what would you do? I guess, could you give an example what you might do with a dog who is becoming over aroused, like what you would do versus maybe um, someone who's training more a traditional approach, how they might approach it just yeah, so that sure. way, like we could have an understanding maybe a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So I'll get, I'll go back to Phoenix. Um, he's, uh, Phoenix is, he's, is, this is a border collie that I, I bred and at very young age, I rocked like at seven weeks, I was like, this, this puppy's not going anywhere. Like he is just an outlier in his behavior. So he's staying here. And so, um, I, I've really struggled now I've got him working now. And it's one of something I'm, I'm very, very proud of, of my accomplishment in terms of figuring out how to get Phoenix to work in a thoughtful way. And what I've done with Phoenix, so um, his arousal was super high, as I was saying, and he would, you know, explode at the sheep, chase them, you know, dog, border collie just are gathering breeds. They're supposed to keep the sheep in a nice little, little group and bring them to you. And he would just like run right through the middle of the sheep, pick, pick one, chase it down the field, barking. And, you know, he'd grab some wool and pull wool and it's, you know, saliva flying all over the place. Like he was just like tail flying in the air. Like it was just a wild chase, right? There was no thoughtful work there. It was all chase. And I was like, oh man, this is not good. Um, so I didn't, I, I felt like this dog was above my pray, my pay grade. Like, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't want him to keep practicing. So I, I stepped away. I didn't do a lot of training with him. And instead I went to, I tried to get some help with him, but the, but the traditional approaches that were being suggested to me involved, um, putting a ton of pressure on this dog, like really, really, cr you know, crunching down on him, um, and, um, being, being really hard on him, which was not, it, for, it's, I don't even have it in me to do that. Like, I've just like, I'm not, I'm not that kind of person. Um, I'm not, that doesn't, that just does not work for me. Um, but even if it was, that was not working for my dog. Um, cause I took him to, you know, someone who, you know, 
is is a very successful trainer and um and phoenix just shut down hmm. so um so those methods you know i'm not i don't know if they had worked would i try to emulate them i have no idea they didn't work um so uh, and then he just quit he was just like i'm done he just was like i don't want i don't want to have anything to do with these sheep anymore um so and when i say pressure i don't mean he wasn't hit he wasn't there wasn't viol physical violence there was just like a lot of you know intense energy put on this dog um to you know like to the person between the sheep and the dog and really like yelling at him to lie down and be really gruff and really intense and using a lot of angry energy to like try and get this dog to like back out of his response of wanting to dive in and go at the sheep um except for with phoenix his it was really an anxiety response. His, he just had this big, big, a lot of arousal. And so when we put a lot of intense energy into his arousal, um, it shut him down. And um, basically very, very, very briefly with arousal, when you go into over arousal, you have uh, a fight response, a flight response and a freeze response. And a freeze response is actually a, and then there's also fawning and stuff, but we'll just keep it to those three. Um, a freeze response is actually the a, a higher level of arousal than a fight or flight response. A freeze response is what the nervous system does. And this isn't a conscious thing. This is just an autonomic nervous system reaction. It's what the nervous system does when it feels completely overwhelmed. So the first thing is, you know, when you're faced with a threat, your 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 initial reaction, your 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 nervous system is going to be like, like let's book it out of here or or fight right like i got to i got to get away from this threat nobody wants to fight because you can get hurt in, in the wild you'd like die if you get injured so you know a fight response is a natural probably first go to for in most situations um if you can't fight like let's say you have a dog or if i can't run away of a dog on a leash or if there's a fenced area or something you might get a fight reaction because then it's like okay i got to engage with this threat and if the dog knows that neither of these things is going to work so you know we had phoenix on a line with somebody really, really getting in his face. And he's like, I'm not gonna fight this guy. He's big and I can't run away cause I'm on the line. I'm just gonna shut down. And he just, he just shut right down. Um, and that's, as I said, a the highest cause we added arousal to arousal. And that's a mistake a lot of people do in, across sports. We have these dogs that go into high arousal and we meet arousal with arousal. And what we wanna do is we wanna bring the arousal down get them out of that high state of arousal. And so to do that, we want to, we, we want to create, we want to give some guidance for the energy the dog has, and we want to engage their brains and we want to keep them feeling safe. And when they feel safe and they have um, a, 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 an outlet for the energy that is constructive, they will then um, do that. So with what I did with Phoenix instead was I put him back on his line, but I started to take him out to sheep what I did was I started just taking him out when I was doing my chores uh, once or twice a day um, and just walked out to the field. And I just had him on a line and I would just say, walk up, lie down, walk up, lie down. And I'd put some hay out and I'd go, okay, and walk up, lie down. And we'd walk over to the water trough and I'd fill that. And I'd say, that'll do. And we'd turn around and we'd leave the field. And so I just spent started spending time with him in the field with the sheep on a line so I I could just keep him 
calm and I could control if he didn't listen because I, you know, just keep everybody safe. Um, and built a habit of we can go in this field and we can stay calm and nothing scary or intense happens. And I did this with him for about a week, maybe 10 days. And I started to also let him bring the sheep in at night, but again on a line and we would walk behind the sheep and then lie down. And as I said, I'd already done like a thousand or more repetitions of more than that, probably like 10,000 repetitions of lie downs with this dog every meal for, for three and a half years. <laughs> plus other times. Right. So anyway, so his lie down's really, really good. Um, and so we just walked behind the sheep lie down and I kept, you know, on the line and he, I could do this all on a loose leash. Like I just had this big loop of loose leash between me and him. And I just worked at a distance. And then I started to close the distance a little bit. Um, and I did, I did this literally for, as I said, about 10 days. And then I was sort of curious and I went out to the sheep and he was being so nice. I just let go of the leash and he went around and then went up and we got a little fast and but i i was able to get in the right position and i let him kind of circle the sheep a few times and then i asked for a lie down and he lay down um and i've been building on that ever since and it's been really just amazing really amazing so i have a question then do you think that sometimes taking an approach like that with a dog and I, this is maybe not even a geared towards your dog but let's just say a dog who's uh any dog that's just bred for some work like this um who maybe doesn't have like the intense arousal issues you're describing do you think that taking this type of approach can sometimes also i don't want to say backfire but cause more frustration because they're not necessarily being allowed to use um their skills that are genetically uh, passed down to them, or if you will, like, like uh, just as an example, I guess, before I was saying one of the ways that uh, you can take a more positive approach to sheep herding when you're introducing a dog to stock is you could have the stock in a small pen and the dog uh, is on a line or maybe offline, I guess it depends on the dog, but, uh, and the dog can circle the pen itself. Um, and they don't have access to touching or getting to the stock that are in the middle, basically. Yeah. You think that sometimes things like that actually can sort of backfire and cause more frustration because that's what I noticed when I, uh, I had seen a friend's dog, uh, work that way. Um, yeah. so the reason for the, yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So I am, I absolutely believe that it's important to keep everybody safe. And so some dogs, you need to put the sheep in a pen and work with protected contact, but you also want to fade that out as fast as you can for exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, because the, one of the biggest R plus when is it for the dog is getting to the balance point. Mm -hmm. And for anybody who doesn't know what balance is, balance is if we think about all of the pressures that we've talked about, right? The and the the um the pushes and pulls between the sheep and the environment and the dog and the handler. And if we think about all of these, all these pushes and pulls, there is a a point the dog hits that where all of the pushes and pulls are neutral or neutralized. So that so and that is this little, it's this, there's this little like sigh, like ah, oh, 
That feels good. And it's, you know, and some dogs need to learn to find that some dogs it's natural for them. They hit that balance point and just feels good. Um, and it, and it's, and I mean, literally it's balance. Like, it's just like wh where it feels it's, it's, it's hard to describe if you yeah. haven't actually done it's it. It's almost like, like I, I don't want to say it's the 12, it's where the dog hits 12 o'clock, but uh, maybe just for visual uh, point, it would, if the dog is maybe bringing the stock to the person, maybe it would be. It's let's it's, it's the place where, okay. Let's say the sheep want to go. So the sheep are in the middle of the field and the dog is supposed to bring you the sheep. Um, and if there's nothing else pulling or pushing the sheep anywhere, then the dog go, if you're, if you're thinking of the sheep at the middle of a clock face and you're standing at six, the dog goes to 12 and pushes the sheep and it brings them to you. And there'll be that point, but that actually doesn't usually happen. So I think that 12 o'clock thing yeah. is, is a little bit of a, um, yeah. is a little keeping. So, so then let's say you've got, um, the sheep up in the center of the clock face and you have a barn at three o'clock and they love that barn and they want, they know the barn is safe and you're at six o'clock. Your dog probably has to be at like, um, two, between two and three o'clock, probably at two o'clock pushing on the sheep because the dog has to neutralize the, the sheep want to go to, you know, to, to three o'clock and the dog, but if the dog pushes straight towards nine o'clock, the sheep are going to go sideways. The dog's got to bring them to you, but you're also pushing the sheep don't want to come to you either. Right. So there's like all of these, like you're pushing the sheep away. The barn is pulling the sheep in one direction. The dog's pushing the sheep in another direction. And where all of these, if like I'm a math person. So I'm like, if all these, where all these vectors neutralize themselves, that's the balance point. And it's going to be constantly changing and constantly um, adjusting. And, it, and there's so many factors involved. And this is why we have herding dogs because they can sense this where we can't, like it's invisible to us. The only way we know when they've got it is because we can tell by their body language relaxes and the sheep start doing what the dog tells them. So it's also another way to think of it. It's the point of control. It's where the dog is in charge of what's going on and not in a chasing, you know, scattering sheep, but it's like where everything is suddenly quietly in control. And that feels amazing to the dog. That is their R plus. And when you have sheep in a pen, the dog can't ever get to that point. Yeah. And that's where that's it starts to become frustration. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I start. I noticed I, it, uh, the dog was just kind of running around and I, it's interesting because I actually have seen that dog in that dog I, I had been with when it was introduced to sheep for the first time. So just to actually observe, um, what he had done in such a short period of time working in a field with the stock versus then a few months later going to someone else and doing it a different way where he was very frustrated um, to the point where he kind of like lost interest in working actually. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so that's, that's exactly it. And that's why I generally don't, take that very slow path with these dogs, unless it's necessary. Even Phoenix, now that I've found the key to getting him to be thoughtful and engage his mind, um, we were progress, you know, as I said, I spent 10 days of walking around, like going out five minutes a day. So total less than an hour of training time. And now we're back to on stock work. 
Um, and I, he, I still have him on a line, but he's dragging it. I'm not holding you, the line. Do you feel that in all of this work and effort that you've put in with, with Phoenix, do you feel that doing the work off of stock really was beneficial looking back? Number one, I guess it's the first question. And then the second thing is, um, do you feel that taking the approach you are taking for him, it's less frustrating for him as opposed to if you were to take a more traditional approach, which might uh, have to utilize more uh, force or punishment of some kind? Yeah, Phoenix. So your first question... Um... Sorry, was, uh, sorry, this, sorry about that. <laughs> um, so the first part was the uh, skills. So working off, oh, like working right. off the stock, did you, do you find that doing, looking back now where you are, do you find that was important and crucial for where you are now? Or do you feel like you could have just bypassed that and done it on stock? Um, so it was important for the relationship not for the skill. I could have absolutely taken him out and worked him on sheep without a lie down and, and just teach the lie down on stock. Mm -hmm. What Phoenix needed was to trust me as his partner out there. And I built that through the flat work. Okay. So when I went out with him, he's just like, this is my person. I trust her. I love her. She's my like very good friend. Mm -hmm. And I am like, over my head here, but I'm going to trust that she's got my back. Um, and so from that perspective, that was important. The actual skill of the lie down, I don't think was that important. Um, but the flat work just built our, built our relationship. And so for him to have that relationship um, as a safety um, kind of anchor was, is important. Did I need to do it for three and a half years? No, but he was a COVID puppy and I couldn't get help. That's why I took so long. Um, and by the time it was no long, he was born a week before, you know, the pandemic shut everything down. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a full two years before I could have go anywhere for help. And by then he's like, he's a big lanky border collie. And, you know, he would have been a lot easier to train when he was a puppy. Now I can't, I, now I didn't feel comfortable taking him on other people's sheep. Mm -hmm. Um, because I was worried that he could, he might do some damage and, and that's not fair to take him to other people's sheep. So then finding, you know, trying to figure out how to get some help in a way that made sense took, took me a little while. Um, if I had this dog all over again from the, from scratch, I could, I would take a different path, but he's the dog who taught me this path, right? That's, that was, that's the journey we've been on. Um, and which is fantastic because I, you know, now have a couple of other dogs that show some similar, not as extreme tendencies. Um, and I know how to work with them and I'm having very quick success with them, which is, which is super fun. Um, so he's, uh, these difficult dogs are the ones that just really like Holly, Holly, like just set me on a whole new path, my Kelpie and, um, each, each really challenging dog. And then it's really nice to have the easy ones. Cause, cause you gotta have your confidence <laughs> supported too. Right. So I, I, I'm, I'm just as grateful for my dogs that are natural and easy because they make me feel like I actually know what I'm doing. And then the dogs that, that, you know, leave me pulling my hair out are the ones that grow me, grow my, my skills as a trainer um, and as a human. So 
um, I wanted to I wanted to jump to uh, something a little sort of on the same topic, but just a little different. Um, so today I was on um, I happened to be on Facebook and I, I happened to notice a post about someone who was um, talking about her first experience with hurting and um, she was talking about how positive the experience was for her and her dog and how she was trying to kind of meet her dog's needs uh, as an owner. And there were some people, I guess, that were um, not maybe thrilled with, you know, with the idea. And so, and one of the uh, comments was um, basically saying, I, I just don't understand the idea of having sheep just to entertain um, a dog. Um, and so I was kind of thinking about dog sports in general, all like all sports. I mean, just everything. Um, and one of the things that I guess was like, when I read that part of what I was even like going down the path in my head was like, well, then like, what's even the uh, point, I guess, of breeding certain breeds? Like, why are we, why breed a dog to herd stock? Why breed a dog to do bite sports when they're just competing in a sport, they're not actually apprehending uh, a criminal on the street, you know, like, so it just made me think of all of these, these things. Um, but I was curious to know, like, what your, what your thought was on that a little bit. So there's a few things that come to mind when you ask that. Um, why, why do this in the first place? Um, I'll, let's start with hurting because that's what we've been talking about. Um, and, and then we can maybe extrapolate to dog sports in general. But um, so why why breed herding dogs? Why do herding as a sport? And I, I'm going to agree with that person who made that comment about like, is it fair to the sheep? It's never going to be fun for the sheep. Like they didn't sign up for this. Mm -hmm. um, they would never choose this. The dog, absolutely. <laughs> Most of them, right? Um, not all, but you know, if your dog likes to herd, they're, they're all in They're the dog's all in and the humans, you know, like we do this cause like, it's pretty awesome. So it's awesome for us. And it's awesome for the dog. It's never going to be awesome for the sheep. Um, and so it's really important, I believe to always keep that in mind and do your very best to make the experience as minimally aversive to the sheep as you can. And so, for instance, I'm very, very careful about who I allow to bring dogs to work on my sheep. Um, and like, I've had people say, hey, you know, I have these, I have, I have like, I'd really love to bring my three Jack Russell Terriers um, because they have like every other certification um, that they can get. And I want more, you know, certificates of accomplishment um, and I would really like to do their herding instinct test. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. Um, that's not why my sh I have sheep. Like my sheep, I will use, I will allow people who want to learn how to work their dogs for herding. Um, I don't care about breed, but you, you, you know, like if, if she was like, I have Jack Russell Terriers, that's all I've got. And I've got a working sheep farm and I need to figure out how to have my dogs help me. That's a very different reason. Right. It's like, okay, you know, like if you, if you really need some help with the dog, let's see if we can figure this out with your, whatever breed you have. Um, but if it's like, no, I just want, you know, I just want to have 
more things to frame and put on my wall, th that's not fair to my sheep. Um, so it's, I think it's really important. And so why do we do this in the first place? Well, for one, um, dogs are really important for working sheep farms and, and cattle farms and, and other livestock or, um, operations. Right. And if you look at how, I mean, can we do it without dogs? Yes. Um, but look at the quality of life of, of animals that are moved with dogs versus not. So let's say, um, I, you know, this is not my case at all, but well, actually it kind of is. Um, I was gonna say, let's go to the UK and they have these big mountain ranges where they can just turn their sheep out and let the sheep go up and graze. Hmm. And the sheep live up there all year round and they have this incredible sheep life. And a few times a year, they have to go up and gather the, the, the sheep and bring them in for various reasons, right? For winter, for hoof trimming, for vaccinating, for lambing, for shearing and all of that. So they have to be... Now, if you didn't have dogs, you could not get those sheep off the mountain. There's just no way. You can't get up there with ATVs. Like, I don't know, maybe they can, maybe they'll be able to do it with drones. Um, I don't know, but you, you can't. And so they just wouldn't be able to let the sheep go up there in the first place. The sheep would have to stay in contained areas, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, and the same, like, if you go to, you know, out West in North America or, you know, down in, in Australia and New Zealand, where the, the animals are allowed to graze over huge distances. Now, some places you could go out and use four wheelers and gather them up and they haze them. They drive back and forth with the four wheelers and move them along. And that, that works too. Um, but it, it, the, you being able to work with dogs allows you, us to graze in areas that we can't access with motorized vehicles. Um, and, and the other thing that's really fascinating from what I've observed is that the sheep, not all breeds, but the sheep seem to understand the dog and respond to it in, in ways that seem kind of natural. It's like they like it's like a a dynamic that is kind of programmed into them. And so when the dog is, if you have a trained dog who comes up, a lot of sheep will very quickly kind of just be like, "Oh yeah, I know what to do." Um, and I was really surprised, like when I introduced my livestock guardian dog, for instance, to my flock, and my sheep had never seen a livestock guardian dog before, um, so it wasn't even like culturally in my flock to work with this. They immediately were very calm and happy and, and accepted my white dogs. Um, and so I, I feel like it's because they've, these species have evolved together. There's kind of this like natural language that they speak. Mm -hmm. My point being that using dogs, um, one could argue and one could argue against this too, but I will argue is a low stress management system that allows us to move livestock and graze them in places and give them a lot more freedom than they might have otherwise. Um, so, and then we can talk about environmental reasons too, for using dogs over like motorized vehicles and so on. So I think there's a real purpose. Also, you know, let's say we have an apocalypse, very handy post-apocalypse. We want to go to extremes, but look at, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm joking here, but you know, we can see reasons in the future where we might want to go back to traditional approaches to 
working with livestock and you know we need we need livestock for various reasons right um so and and that's another argument well we don't have to go down can that I, can i can i just offer just a tad bit of pushback here and it's kind of like yeah, playing playing devil's advocate too and yeah. it's not meant to be like an attack towards you it's just like a thought like a thought argument mm-hmm. um so because this was something that actually struck me when anthony i don't know anything about hurting at all so this has been interesting for me to to sit here and listen and i i only know through anthony and i'll say that it's something that is super impressive to watch it's just so cool um to think about a trainer that's trying to use positive reinforcement only um to train a dog that then is going to have aversive control over another animal like like the dog the the dog is controlling is stopping is compelling um is probably correcting um this other animal so it's almost like what like why bother then is like the argument that i could hear someone making um now i'll admit my my view on training is almost in, in line with you where I don't care what quadrant I'm in as long as the animal I'm training is having a good time and is in an emotional state that is, you know, willing to work and happy and enthusiastic. Um, so I'm not going after you there. I'm just like, what would you say to someone that would say that, I guess? And then what, like, because that stuff isn't, because exactly like the exact the exact arguments you're giving for using a dog, for example, might be that it almost sounds like someone using those arguments for training a dog. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the arguments you gave for, for using a dog to control a sheep is some of the same arguments I see for the use of certain aversive control or tools or training methodologies for training a dog. Um, And I don't know if I misheard you before, but it sounds like, in a lot of ways you're open to that and in a lot of ways you've actually you've actually seen benefit to that which i i'm actually the same um i know you you said it was because you're lazy but i don't think it's just because you're lazy i think i think it you have seen that it there's a benefit to it um so yeah here's the the long question anthony was where i was warning you about in the beginning i just it's like the way my mind is kind of going i'm kind of looking at all this stuff um because i know i know you said like plus r plus r 2.0 but it it sounds like our favorite quadrant tonight is is negative reinforcement which like i i love like i love negative reinforcement i like i love using pressure in a way where the dog knows how to navigate that pressure i think it it can build extremely resilient dogs i think it can can build dogs that are super clear on what we want from them versus a dog that is confused and frustrated and maybe like reinforced to this point of like a dopamine addicted, you know, nutso that has no way out of their brain, right? They're just like seeking and seeking and seeking. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my word vomit to kind of throw a monkey wrench into this because I've been listening to both of you and I didn't want to like interrupt because you guys are making good points. And I'm again, like this is nowhere near my wheelhouse. It's very interesting to me to, to listen to it. And then I was just having this realization of like, 
when you were talking about using the dog, I was like, damn, it sounds like what I hear a lot of balance trainers saying about why, you know, we might use a tool, right? Like in terms of like the benefits of it or what we're allowed to give these, oh, my dog can run and be more free and have more freedom and do more things because I can control them at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I apologize for that, like complete... No just like lump or whatever. So whatever you take out of that, and if there's something that I wanted you to clarify on, um, I'll, I guess I'll ask. <laughs> I, I was gonna say, it was funny because I, I had that thought earlier <laughs> when I was talking about what I was just like, yeah, and I, I sound like I'm <laughs> um, like why I use electric fence on my farm. I run a hot wire around my farm so that my livestock guardian dogs can run free, um, right? So that's just like, it's the tool I use to give them more freedom because before I had the hot wire, they were ending up on the highway and then they had to be kept in the barn. So, um, yeah, these are complicated questions. Um, now, now my, my livestock guardian dogs have acres that they can run free and they can do their job properly. Um, so, um, so I, I'm, I'm a big fan of my hot wire. <laughs> 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 um, so yeah, I realize that puts us on a very slippery slope. And so, um, these are, these are just really complicated questions. And I think this is all stuff that every person needs to grapple with for themselves and figure out where they're, what they're comfortable with. Um, I am comfortable running a hot wire around my fence. I am not comfortable putting an e-collar on my dogs. Um, I'm not saying that e-collars are bad. Um, that's just my personal, where I, where I, um, would I put an e-collar on my guardian dogs to keep them, you know, they have these like GPS collars now that could give them more space to roam. Um, if I thought it would work, I would actually, I've actually looked into that. My concern was that if they cross the line, they'd be afraid to come back. So I prefer to use a hard fence. So I actually have like, my, all my fencing is visible so they can see it. Um, and then there's no, there's no questions. Um, that's, but you know, it, it, it does, it puts us, puts us into these very, this is, that's never, I don't think anything is clear and black and white about working with other species or other humans, <laughs> right? It's all so then why, why the, um, why, um, and I think, and if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, I think you were labeling yourself as like a plus R trainer. Um, and I guess, um, and I, I do not consider myself just like a solely plus R trainer. So I'm not, again, I'm not coming at you from that side of being like, you're a balance trainer, get the hell off of this podcast. Like, it's not that it's almost like, I'm wondering like, why? Because I struggle with it personally is like, why limit yourself to saying that if you are okay. using pressure and you are using negative, like, like, I think you nodded, I, I know people can't see you. But when I said negative reinforcement is a great quadrant, you were like nodding your head and like going up and down. But it's like, but why not talk about that more maybe um, uh, uh, if if you don't or why kind of shy away from it? Like why not be a negative R 2.0? Like why say R okay. plus 2.0? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very, very fair question. Um, so to me, okay, to me, my definition, and please push back on this. Go ahead. <laughs> this, is, this is a great conversation to have. <laughs> To me, what comes up, comes to mind when I think balance trainer, and as I said, go ahead and correct me on this one. Um, I think intentional use of 
and, and I did, I didn't, I've never thought of this before until this moment. Okay. My, my brain went to intentional use of fear. Okay. That's interesting that you feel that way. Yeah, no, that is right. As I said, I'm like, yeah. I'm live on the spot. My brain, I'm like, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Back, right. Cause my, that's how my brain thinks of as, as opposed to intentional use of the other quadrants, which you can use without evoking fear, which is exactly the argument I was just using for why I use negative reinforcement. Um, so I'm contradicting myself, right? No, yeah, but no, but I think this is a, it's a good conversation to have because I, I think, and and without it turning into a debate of of methodologies or like two camps, it's it's actually like that's good to know that you you're saying that your thought is the intentional use of fear um because you actually brought it up before that sometimes the word punishment gets like all over the place because we just think it means like you have to punch your dog in the head right but right. like punishment just really means like you have to stop a behavior and you can you can stop a dog or an animal or a person from doing a behavior without creating fear without creating pain without creating intimidation like you could literally just step in front of a dog and like technically you're punishing them um yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so it, it just, I know we glossed over the R, the, I don't know much about like what the definition of like the R 2.0, I know you said Amy Cook, I've like heard of it briefly, but I don't, I'm not like, I'm I don't want to, I'm not I can't up speak, on it. I can't yeah, yeah, I know you can't speak at her, all. so I, I, I wasn't really sure what that was. Um, it's, it's a term that I, I picked up from her and I've created my own interpretation which was using the emotional state rather than like, if I have a clicker in food, you know, kind of idea of like working with the dog. So using the emotional state of the dog as the, um, as the guide. Yeah. Which yeah, I see. then opens up using the other quadrants. Yeah. Which, yeah, that's, and that's exactly what, what like, so I'll be clear. Like I think fear, almost selfishly i've found that if i've ever driven a dog into a fear response during training it rarely helps with anything like they shut down they stop doing the thing that they oh, it, were doing it helps you feel great for about two and a half milliseconds right and not and it's, not even always it's like that frustration and then that's why i'm yeah. saying like i like i honestly negative reinforcement is and I think this is what you've stumbled upon too, and I think you've you've found how useful it is, is a pressure that you put on an animal that you've taught the animal how to escape Understand. or yeah. go away to and know how to be correct. As long as it's fair and as long as you're not making that animal do something that they're not capable of doing. Yeah. And that's, is, that's I think it's what you're talking about. I think that's what you're talking about. And, and that's what I use. Like, that's what I like to do. Um, and I feel like it really is a valuable thing to teach and is more beneficial for in certain situations than solely doing um, positive reinforcement only. And that's why I wanted to push back on the laziness thing, because like, I'm, I'm a lazy person sometimes but with my dogs. I am not like, if you told me like, there's a way to do it in one day or a hundred days, like, but the hundred ways days is better. Like I'll do a hundred days. And I've found that it's not just like, a, Oh, I want to be lazy. And I'm like doing it to be quick because I think there is, that's like another thing where it's like, if you're doing something because it's faster, like it automatically means you're lazy. Um, and it's like, you have you shouldn't have to just take four years to teach your dog something 
Like, I feel like sometimes people get in this like contest of like, oh, well, I've been working on it for eight years. Like, you know what I mean? Like at a certain point, maybe what you're doing is not, it's like clarity, right? Like that's another buzz phrase, but like, how do you give the dog clarity as quick as you can versus like make this dog struggle for so long? You know what I mean? Like, can you just hold the dog's hand and guide them? right without making them scared of you because you're fair and you ask them fair things and you set them up for that versus if you've never shown them that type of pressure because what I found and this is what I dealt with um, when I did try to stick solely to the positive reinforcement quadrant was eventually I would have to put pressure on the dog at the worst time because I wasn't prepared for it. And then that pressure would be perceived as even worse because it's like, whoa, you've never done this to me before. And now it's happening at this like, oh shit moment. And I think you bring up a really important point in that we need to teach them what the pressure means. Um, and in herding, you'll have dogs, They do a lot of the dogs will naturally understand the pressure, but not all. And so we need to be able to recognize, like, do they need to understand what the pressure means? Um, and 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 what how to respond to it in a way that um you know gets them the results that are correct you know that gets them the reinforcement um and so setting up our training in such a way that we uh we we make that clear and and I'm totally with you on clarity is the most important um part of training and we can have a lot of not clear training and call it R plus. I've seen a lot of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a problem. It's a big problem. It's a really big problem that is, you know, probably not talked about enough in. Yeah. Because that itself can become aversive, which is sometimes confusing. And I think that's what's confusing. And that's like, so like, put you on the spot but like I feel and this is where I think you got to before that made so much sense to me was about the dog's mental state so if you have a dog that you're just throwing hot dogs at and it's positive reinforcement but the dog is freaking confused and has no idea what the hell it's doing yeah versus a dog where like you know I don't know what kind of tools you guys are using you guys are using like cattle prods over there no I'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> you know like if you guys are using even social pressure like you said you step in front of the dog right like that dog is not getting shut down from that unless you do. And like you said, yeah, of course, if you have a dog that you step towards and it freaks them out, then like, that's not something that you'd want to be doing. We've talked many times on this, on this podcast about how like, even just like a lot of people will resort to verbal type social pressure first, because it seems like the safest. But if you have, like you said, a border collie or like even my Malinois is like very, very, sensitive to like if I even like seem like I'm upset he's like what did I do wrong why are you upset whereas like he would rather I just like like shove my leg into him to push him out of the way versus right. like if I yell at him he's gonna cower on the floor and be like what did I do wrong like why don't you love me anymore um so yeah it's just it's it's interesting I'm sorry Anthony uh save me I'm, I'm going off the edge well it was funny because I was thinking as you were saying that I was thinking back to my example before about the dog uh, chasing the sheep and chasing, excuse me, going in a circle around the sheep in like a small pen. In one sense, 
for some dogs, maybe that's appropriate, but for others, I like the dog that I saw, it was very aversive to him. It caused him to become a lot more frustrated than if he was able to just work the stock himself. Um, so I I'd like just kind of to your point, I guess, about, about like, you know, what, I guess in a way, like what the dog is finding to be a little bit aversive versus like what we're thinking in our mind is yeah. aversive. And that's where it's so important for us to understand how to read our dog's reactions. Um, and that's, that's a major skill that a lot of people don't get taught and don't develop. Um, and so learning how to read your dog and recognize what they're experiencing to the best of our ability um, and you know, moderating our training according to what the dog is doing is, is the art of training, right? So one of the problems that I think we end up with is that there's a lot of science of training and I, I love the science of training, however, you have to, it, that's only like 50%. If we're, you know, I'm getting, getting scientific. That's being pretty generous. Um, no, I'm okay. <laughs> pretty generous over there. Um, it's like, it's one piece. It's one, it's one piece to understand, yeah. um, you know, but it's not, but, but the, the application of training is all about, it is such an art. And every dog is different and every situation is different. And we start to see patterns. The more dogs we train, the more work, you know, patterns we see. Like now that I've worked through, you know, figuring out how to get Phoenix going on sheep, I now have a new set of, you know, understanding around dogs that are similar to him. And I can, you know, add that to my understanding. And the more dogs I work with, the more nuanced I become. But um, it's never a one size fits all. So we have to constantly be adjusting and, and figuring it out and responding and like what works well for one dog isn't going to work well for another. And like with Anthony saying that, you know, his dog totally did not work in that one setting, but the, the instructor probably has had success doing that, which is probably why they had that set up because with other dogs, it did work. And so, you know, figuring that out and then recognizing, Hey, this isn't working. Let's stop and change tax rather than let's just keep doing what's not working and hope for better results. Right. Um, yeah. So there's, there's, that's. Yeah. I think, and I also think like this kind of brings up just dog sports in general. And I think where you can have your difference, uh, you can learn your different skill sets or you could learn kind of to what Vinny was saying a little bit before about, Oh yeah, you know what? this is maybe causing my dog to become frustrated or uh, because he's never worked in the face of this before, like negative, uh, negative reinforcement you were discussing before. And I think that's where dog sports kind of like lends itself well, I guess, in many ways, especially for the dog trainer, because you have, you're learning a whole new set of skills and you're kind of like the, you know, you're kind of like the client in a way, right? Like, especially if you're going to classes or you're going to a workshop, you don't know. Like I was just at a, I was just at a herding workshop a few weeks ago and it was for field trial 
stuff. And for anyone who doesn't know, like in sheep herding field trials, when you're on acres of property versus the arena, which is like, I don't know what the arena is, 200 feet by 100 feet or something. Um, and so my instructor said we were ready and we definitely were not ready. <laughs> I, I knew, I knew, but you know what? Like I, I knew and I was like, all right, well, maybe we'll try it. We'll just see. And it went so horrible. It went so horrible. And like just sitting there watching everyone else's dog and seeing like the skill set that all these people and some of these people are not professional trainers at all. There might have been a couple people who are actual farmers there and, and they like to trial their dogs, even though they use them for real work. And there were people who were, you know, just dog owners who like to do sports with their dogs. But the skill set, I guess, that I was getting at um, that you can take away from sports, I think, is is so invaluable, especially when you can bring those skills into working with a client. Um, and whether that's, even if it's just a family dog, like your everyday client that we work with, or like the Vinny and I work with, I guess, cause I know you work more with sport, sport dogs, but just like those skills that you can, um, you know, you could take away, or I guess the things that you can look at or take from it, like to Vinny's point, uh, of again, of the negative reinforcement you were originally, you were training your dog using, I guess, uh, a positive approach. And then all of a sudden you found yourself in a situation where you were like, Oh crap, I'm here in this situation and I'm having to do something my, that my dog isn't necessarily prepared for. Whereas I feel like sports sometimes kind of gives you a little leg up or, or it makes you start looking at those things a little bit more, if that makes sense. And I'm rambling now. Cause I don't even remember what my original point was. I brought this up. There was a point and I don't remember now, but I think the basics is just that it's so, you know, there's just so much nuance involved, right? And it's, it, we get, we, we, we're, we're always on that slippery slope. And I think when we try to get off it by taking very black and white stances about something, we probably get ourselves into more trouble than if we just learn how to skate on that slippery slope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I really, I, I, I've enjoyed very much the the, the the conversation and Vinny, thanks for your questions. Cause that was like, I'd never really actually thought about why I resist the label. Balance. Yeah. And I, and I want to just make sure you know that I'm, I'm not really, I wasn't, I'm not trying to like be like, I gotcha. Or I'm like, Oh no, I don't take you. it that way at all. I think that it's was like those, question. those questions are the questions that I personally struggle with. So yeah, by asking you is more just like playing devil's advocate because because I get asked those type of questions. And then I also wanted to see what you thought of it um, because it's something that I struggle with myself when it's like, why why do I need to do this? Because um, I don't think it's just because I'm lazy or it's because I'm like angry or it's because like I want to like, like, look, I don't think I'm going to win any medals with my dog. I don't really care if I do either, you know? So it's like, why then? And because to me, truly, I find that, and to your point that I like the most, out of everything you said was like, it doesn't matter about the quadrant matters about like what the dog's mental state is. And I think I had a little bit of like a, not like identity crisis, but almost like a, why is this thing that I didn't think should make the dog happier or, or more calm or, or just better? Why is it like, how come when I started using negative reinforcement, my dog actually was better than if I wasn't? You know, like it kind of played with my brain a little bit. 
I have a question for you on that. Um, when you started adding negative reinforcement, do you think it was the negative reinforcement or do you think it was that you, you have, you're just better at explaining to your dog what to do? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of things I did differently in terms of the negative reinforcement. I'm not sure what you, like, I, I kind of, tr so like, without going into like the full thing that I did with him, but like what I kind of taught him was the escape first. Like, I feel like in the past, I teach a dog to sit, I teach a dog to sit, I teach a dog to sit, and then the dog breaks one day and I go, no, what are you doing? And then, like, now I'm correcting you, right? What I kind of did with Zim is, like, I didn't even ever verbally speak to him for, like, months. Like, everything was, like, I am going to lure you into a sit, lure you into a sit, lure you into a sit a hundred times, and then I'm going to give you, like, finger pressure upward with a collar, and I'm going to lure you into a sit, and I just basically taught him the pressure. Like I taught him pressure first so that then once I did shift to a verbal and then I needed to add a pressure, the corrections, and, and we talked about this on one of our previous uh, podcasts, like the corrections were not punishments or like aversive, scary, like I'm making you fearful. They were more like guidance. Like if I ask you to sit and you don't, now I'm going to put a pressure on you, but you've already seen that pressure a thousand times and you've learned how to escape it. And you've learned that escaping is actually a positive thing. Um, and I feel like that, that clarity, you know, just helped him, you know, helped the dog him or, you know, the other thing with Zim, like, I don't know if it's similar to border collies, but, um, he's very internal. I, I don't, I'm not familiar with border collies, but I've heard that they're more like internal where like they'll stalk or they'll freeze or they'll get like the more he would get something that people refer to as like prey locking, like the more amped he was for a reward, like the more the harder it would be for him to move whereas like my labrador if i took out a frisbee i could tell him to spin and he's like he's like going quick with the malinois i take out his favorite toy and he's like and then wouldn't even sit like i asked him to do a sit and he'll like do it like you know like really slowly whereas if i said sit and then i was able to like give him a little bit of like and again it's not a correction but if i was able to do some like leash pressure he would he'd be like oh i know what to do with that like i just need to get away from that um, so I don't know if that fully answers your question, but yeah. So that, that sounds to me what I would call that guiding pressure. Right. Yes. And so we're, we're giving them, you're using pressure as a guide and that's exactly what I do in herding is I yep. use pressure as a guide as opposed to, um, aversive pressure. Um, mm -hmm. and so aversive pressure is pressure that is causing fear. Yes. And the dog gets to decide what kind of what what that is yeah yeah so we can so for instance with with my herding when the dog is going around the sheep and they're too tight um i can step into their shoulder and when i hit the right point on the shoulder the and dog just to clarify to just to clarify you don't mean physically step into their shoulder i just want to oh. Make yes. that clarification. <laughs> I'm, 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 there's a big distance between me and the dog. The dog is going yeah. at like, you know, in, in a full gallop in a circle around the sheep. And I am stepping towards the dog and my, my virtual pressure. So I'm not touching the dog at all, but my, my pressure of the, the direction. So the way I see this is that my path yeah. my path is going to intersect the dog's path. And as I remember how I said earlier, my dogs like move like a school of fish. 
So if my, mm. the direction of my path intersects with my dog's path, my dog is going to naturally bend out to avoid my path and, and, and step, set themselves on a, a new path. And so I can be, you know, I can be 30, 40, 50 feet away from my dog and just gently pressure their path and shape where I want them to go. And then what ends up happening with the dog, if, if, if some dogs have to learn this, so I'm talking about a dog that's sort of natural and bred for this. Um, they will, they will, it will feel right to them. And the one, the beautiful thing about herding with, again, a working bred dog where this is natural and this is not all of them, but when they, when that, when the things are right, that means they are, they feel that they have control over the sheep and they're, they, they relax. They're like, Ooh, that felt good. And, um, and the only thing I can liken it to is like, if as an, as an, you know, as a human, as an athlete, we do some kind of a movement and we're like, Ooh, that felt good. Right. Like, I didn't, I like, maybe I was out of balance, but suddenly I found my balance point. I'm not going to wobble over here and I can like walk across this balance beam now. And I, I found how to like center my gravity and oh, that feels really good. I want to keep doing that or, or whatever analogy we can think, you know, like I'm trying, it's very, I, can't I think, I fit. think, yeah, I was just say, I think also just because you're saying this, uh, it's important to say when you see on social media, the, uh, herding dogs that are like biting at the animal's heels or um, gripping on to like the animals or like when they're at a face-off or a standoff and the dog comes biting in, that is generally not what people are, it, it, people in sports, for example, are not looking for that. Mm -hmm. um, it's no. something that is frowned upon, especially when you're competing. And honestly, even when we're, when people are working on a, a farm itself, uh, using the dogs in a real life scenario, that's not really what they're looking at. So I just want to say that as you're just saying this, because I think it's important that, uh, listeners understand who, who don't really know this, that it is not about like the dog coming in hot and biting at the the other the animal's face or biting at their heels it does sometimes happen if the dog is in a sticky situation um unless the dog is you know maybe a little bit you know <laughs> edgy themselves and, and that's more of a training issue but if if they're in a situation where they're put then that can happen but i just want to say that as you're kind of describing this just so everyone understands that that's you're when you're talking, you're not talking about dogs who are coming in hot, biting at the stock. It, the, 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 the balance point, and this is kind of where I was getting at, I guess the balance point in that release of like, ah, that felt good is you're seeing the stock work calmly as a team with the dog. Yes. The dog is working the stock and is the one in, is the one controlling the situation if the stock are running to the barn the dog is going to stop them he's going to be the referee basically coming in saying you're not going there and if the stock don't stop or aren't going to listen the dog may come in and try and nip or bite or whatever but that's not like the the purpose or the intention it's really that we're trying to kind of see like them work as a team. The dog is in is controlling the movement of the animal and the animals are working calm or moving calmly, not like running in in fear, stampeding okay. away unless they're like 
you know, the, the range use in the, like the wild of like Montana or something where they're brought in twice a year. That's totally like that. That's a little different, but like, uh, so I just wanted to clarify that while you're talking about like that balance point. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. And it's really important to understand because it, like, our dog should never be biting the sheep. The only time it's, it's acceptable is in self-defense. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I, I don't work cows, but it, I, I'm pretty sure they don't like they we, dogs shouldn't be biting cows either. I don't know why it's become so trendy on social media to see these like videos of dog like this to show how how tough their dogs are. I don't work cattle, so I can't speak to whether or not that's actually necessary. But I know with sheep, we don't want our dogs biting the sheep ever because one little puncture mark and then the dog, especially if you turn them out into the field and they get like an infection, they can go down pretty fast. So you, you just don't want that. So the only time it's acceptable is if like, if you have a, a, like a sheep that's trying to like headbutt your dog and comes after your dog, then the dog can defend itself, but it should never be the aggressor. Um, you dog, you know, the dog is the one with the teeth. They should be able to, a confident dog will just walk right into the sheep and the sheep will move. And just that level of confidence of the dog will, is, is what you're looking to build. And that is something that some dogs do naturally. Many have to be taught. Um, and I'll give an example, my, my Raven, who's my main farm dog, she, she doesn't have a lot of power and presence over the sheep. And once upon a time, I used to think she was, she just wouldn't be able to move the sheep. So she'd come up, let's, I wanted to like put, let's say put the sheep in the barn and they'd be standing in the mouth of the barn and Raven, I'd be like, come on, Raven, get them, get them up. And she'd just be standing there. And then I, I started to realize what she was doing she would just, she was just holding the pressure. So she'd be like five or 10 feet away from the sheep and the sheep are looking at her and she's looking at the sheep. And if you watched her, you would just see her lean like an inch, maybe two inches. And just like, maybe her feet didn't even move, but her, she's just more forward over her feet. And then you watch the sheep and one of them will start to turn its head and then another will follow. And then all of a sudden they all turn and move into the barn. And Raven never moved, her feet are still in the exact same place. And she just shifted her weight forward. There was never any physical contact and the sheep just gently, quietly drift into the barn. And what I, I have to say, Raven, the only way I can describe it is she takes incredible pride in being able to use the least amount of force necessary to root the sheep. Cause I used to be telling <laughs> her like, get up, get up, get up. And she would just use that little tiny bit of force. And then she'd look at me like, I did it again. <laughs> she just so be so proud of herself. And so now I don't tell her to get up anymore. She knows her job. I just tell her walk. <laughs> and I stand there and I wait. And then she now in a trial, we'd lose time because people they, you know, like things fast. But on my farm, I always try to work my sheep very gently, very quietly. Um, and and I have a dog who's very, you know, who who's really excels at that. Um, and so yeah, so we want to hand getting back to your earlier uh, question, Anthony, about you know, why do we, why is it even fair to the sheep? We want to, we want to be as fair as possible to the sheep. And so help, helping our dogs learn how to move the sheep without biting, without chasing, we absolutely do not want them chasing. Um, the dog, what we want to see is a dog who is in calm control of the sheep and, and, and who can move them in a, in a steady way. Um, so that we don't want the sheep running a uh, funny little story I heard years ago about someone who was in the UK they were training their dog on the hill and the, the this dog was like chasing the sheep around a lot. And then finally they called the dog back and, and this friend of mine, I can't even remember who told me the story, but she, she said, well, she was, 
she asked the person something about, you know, the sheep. And he said, oh, those aren't my sheep. He said, I would never train my young dogs on my own sheep and run off the, you know, run all the weight off them. <laughs> He'd go out to the commons and train on other people's sheep because he wouldn't oh, want that enough. <laughs> yeah, it's not cool. But it was also that that whole idea of like, you don't want your dog running the sheep around, even from a super pragmatic, even if you don't uh, take into account the emotional state of the sheep, from a very practical perspective, you don't like you don't want to run the the weight off them because they're sold by the pound, right? So you want to have, you want to just have your dog trained to be able to move the sheep in a, in a fluid, you know, efficient way that doesn't panic them, that doesn't run their, the weight off them, that doesn't, but, but, you know, but also you can't take all day doing it. Right. And so you find that balance, but that, so that's what we're aiming for. Um, and so we're not aiming, they shouldn't be chasing. They shouldn't be biting and gripping. Um, they shouldn't be wildly running around. And so if I have a dog, if somebody comes to me with a dog, that's going to be like wild and crazy on sheep, I will absolutely use protected contact. I will put sheep in a pen and we're gonna get some basics and foundations. We're gonna put the dog on a line. We're gonna work outside some fence until we have a little bit of control. And then as soon as I have a little bit of control, you're right, Vinny, it's not, it's, I, it's not about being lazy. It's to, in, to me, it's, like you said, it's about getting, it's I wasn't about letting you get away with that one. <laughs> it's about getting effective results. And if I can train up a dog quickly, I agree with you. That is, that is, first of all, it's R plus for me. Second of all, I think it's, but it's, it's, it's better for the dog. It's better yeah. for the sheep. The faster everything comes together, the better. However, for people who are starting out and who don't have the skill set, like I've been doing this for a long time. And there are absolutely people who can train way faster and way better than me. And there are a lot of people who are a lot newer into this and, and are still learning. And, need, and in that case, you want to slow things down and do things in much more systematic ways. So I wouldn't have a novice try and repeat what I'm doing. I wouldn't tell someone who's, you know, just learning or has only trained a couple of dogs to put them out in, in my like four acre field with like my, you know, very, very wild cheviots and say, have at her with your green dog, like never. Um, right. But, you know, I'm, I've, tr I've started enough dogs and I also have kind of a, a, a farm that's designed with multiple options. And i I go out and I'm like, boy, if the, my first session is a catastrophe, I immediately stop. <laughs> um, and I, and I, uh, you know, rethink and, and reapproach it. Um, so, so there's a lot of, a lot of nuance there, but yeah, I do for me, I can get a dog working a whole lot faster and I can train a lot of the, the skills I need on sheep because I, I know how to get them to balance I can, I, you know, I, I'm out there with my running shoes on and I am moving, I'm hustling and I am getting in the right place and I'm running with my dog and I'm, and I'm moving around so that I can make things correct so that my dog can get to that balance point, feel it in their bones and be like, Ooh, I like that. And then once they, once they're feeling that balance point, I can use that as like a giant clicker for, um, for building the behaviors I want. How do I teach a recall off stock? I call my dog off stock. And as soon as they come back, it, it, even to start, all they have to do is like show a slow, like a slight slowdown. And I let them back on the sheet, right? So pre-Mac. And then in like one, sometimes one training session, I can get a recall off stock. Sometimes it takes 10, but I can build a better recall off stock using sending them back to the sheet than I could ever with a, any mm -hmm. other and for these dogs, it's it's really the only way to get, well, I shouldn't say that. You can do it other ways. I can get it way faster, way more effectively 
more solidly by training them on sheep. Same with a lie down. So I yeah, why not give them what they want as a reward? <laughs> they want sheep. They want sheep more than they want anything else, right? Yeah. So I take my dogs out and I take. I, I do like to teach them the basics off stock so that and and they, it goes out the window the second they go out there, but it comes back. <laughs> um, but I I will teach them those things on stock because I can. But if I've got someone who's a more novice trainer, I'm like, get your cookies out, get your clicker, go out and train these things. Let's get these skills in your dog. And then we'll be prepared for it to go out the window when we put them on sheep and then we'll get it back over time. Right. So it really depends on, on the, on the dog, the trainer and so on. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. This was great. This was a lot of fun and really interesting. Yeah. This was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, you know, for, uh, this for was, like me. I said, it was kind of selfish too. Cause I wanted to hear more about like the more positive approach. Cause the one time I had the experience, it, it didn't go well for me or my dog and, and my friend and her dog, who, cause we went to, we went together to this lesson. Uh, so, um, so yeah. So, and you know, you get used to like a certain way that you're taught or, or trained, like that's where your comfort level is. So, you know, so this is, this is great to be able to understand more about, you know, about this stuff. So, and, and like I said, if you watch the really great handlers, like they're almost use all like almost, most yeah. of what they're doing would be considered positive reinforcement. Oh yeah. Yeah. Training, I mean, there's right? so many times I know like where my instructors will say like, you know, as soon as your dog does this, like have them, you know, have them walk up or have them do whatever, you know, cause yeah. that's their, that's what your dog's reward is right now. Yeah. So there's no, to my, to my mind, there's really no like black and white line Yeah. around what, you know, I, 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 that's why I, I, I shy away from labels. I'm grateful for Vinny's calling me out. <laughs> and, and <laughs> no, I'm going to be thinking about that, that too now. And, yes that's my I, that's my goal every podcast is to make anthony stay up at night thinking <laughs> <laughs> here we go not both of you not both here of you, you have to, they have to be up with me that's what i do <laughs> awesome thank you thank you do you want to so, uh, yeah, tell, so tell tell everyone uh where before you go where they could find you um and all that yeah, sure. So um, right now, my uh, you can find me on Facebook, um, Elen, uh, Elen Lawler. Um, uh, you can find me on Instagram, Elen.Lawler. Um, I do have a TikTok account as well. I haven't been active there for a while. I might go back to it. Also, Elen.Lawler, uh, Elen being H-E-L-E-N-E dot L-A-W-L-E-R. Um, I have the, if you, if you, if you like what I said and you want to hang out with me, the best thing to do is to get on my email list. Um, my web, my uh, internet presence is a bit of a hot mess right now. So the best thing to do is find me at alenlawlercoaching.ca forward slash newsletter. Um, so you can just sign up there. I would do have lots of good stuff coming, um, working behind the scenes, but that's right now that's it. <laughs> and we're going to put, we'll put the, um, you'll send me the link that way we could put that in the show notes for anyone uh, under this podcast. So they can just click that directly. Perfect. Perfect. Thank cool. you. Appreciate it. Cool. Thank you very much for coming on. We Thanks so much for coming on. This is awesome. Thank you. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Take care. All right. Bye. See you later. Bye. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Canine Classroom. If you like the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends, and give us a rating. Until next time, class dismissed.